This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. This program is produced by podcastandradio.com Small Biz Small Biz America The Brain Joining us on this segment are two very seasoned content marketing and communications experts. They are also the co-authors of the book Startup Land Madness, Brilliance, and PR Misadventures. Kevin Wolf joins us. He's the founder of TGPR. They are a content marketing and PR agency based in Silicon Valley. Polly Trailer is the founder and owner of PST Consulting Incorporated. They are a corporate communications firm based in the Denver area. Welcome to you both. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So let's start at the top with the book, Startup Land, Madness, Brilliance, PR Misadventures. What should we expect from the book? Well, thanks, David. Appreciate again you having us on. Uh, quite a few things we hope readers will take away. Uh, I think the biggest thing for us is that uh, what we've learned over you know a couple decades in this business is that startups, many of them, suffer from a lot of the same issues. And uh, you know whether they're having success ultimately or failure, uh, what we've learned is that we've seen uh, you know a bunch of companies that have dealt with uh, things like oversized management egos, uh, some that have dealt with issues like inertia, uh, an in- inability to delegate responsibility, and uh, you know, in many cases, uh, excessive employee churn at these companies. Mm, yeah, many symptoms there. Polly, would you add anything there? Yeah, pretty much the same. And I think what I found have found interesting about startups is that having worked at a couple of very large companies. Um, I always thought startups were going to be really efficient and get a lot of stuff done, but that's not really the case. You can have uh, great people, talented, hardworking, and then you know certain things just never get done. And, and so I think in a certain aspect, they suffer from similar problems that large companies do. And I think it all comes down to leadership and process. Yeah, it does come down to people, doesn't it? And I've had some uh, experience around this space as well. And as you talk about communications, it's really all about the quality of the people there, which ultimately is who is being invested in, right? Right. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, that comes across in every case. You see some you know, real sharp people at some of these companies and uh, you know who can get a lot done in a short amount of time. And then you see some people who are not accustomed to uh, running a small business or starting an organization, and they yeah. seem to fumble uh, along the way, and that comes through a lot of the times in their communications. Yeah, there's a common theme, I think, with startups, too, is that sometimes the idea-generating people or person is not ideal to structure, create a platform, 
deal with HR functionality. I mean, these seem to be the places you go with the stories you tell in the book. And, you know, we'll, we'll dig in a little bit deeper about what's in the book specifically. But it's a very dynamic environment, no doubt. Unpredictable. <laughs> Unpredictable is exactly the right word. So what was the process like putting this book together? Is it, um, if I've got it right, there are stories, right? I, I said that a moment ago. I hope I've got that right. That's right. That's right. Uh, what we've tried to do is use some of the um, experiences that we've had over the last several years yeah. and uh, form those into themes uh, around some of the things that we've seen and use the stories and the examples from our experiences to share some of the communication challenges and uh and, you know, opportunities, really, David, that uh, companies have when they're starting up to, to grow their businesses and, uh, you know, to help tell their stories using, uh, using marketing and, and PR as, uh, as a primary vehicle. Now, the marketing and PR piece to all of this, of course, is fascinating because that's different than sort of the, the getting a, a business started and deployed and into market and tested and beyond beta and then various rounds of capital and et cetera. So... So, and that I would regard that, this is my language, it's more external to the company. So I'm interested in that piece too. Like, for example, do you or have you worked with companies as they're in the capital raise stage? In other words, this very early stage going from angel to series, uh, et cetera. Is that a space that you operate in as well as a more mature company? Paul, you want to take that one? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I, I think we, we work at all stages of companies. You know, yeah. companies that, as you say, are very early stage, just starting to get a little bit of money and don't even have a product really developed yet, as well as the, those who have been at it for a couple of years and, and finally somebody told them, hey, you guys better start working on your PR and marketing, or maybe they have hired a, a young marketing manager who says, geez, I, I need some help here. So it's really all across the board, and, and sometimes we get into situations in which you know, we think there's a product, and then we find out later, wow, there was never any product, and the company just died. So, you know, <laughs> there's a lot that yeah. you don't know about when you're external to the company, and you really have to just hope and pray that what you are communicating out to the market is actually true. Right. Now, you're in Silicon Valley, Kevin, but uh, I'm curious, as a team or, or separately, are there particular startup sectors that you have tended to work with more than others? Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, we're, we're pretty focused, David, in the enterprise software and services space. Uh, we yeah. deal with companies that are akin to established organizations like an Oracle or an SAP, but on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a, definitely an area of focus for us. I would also say what is commonly referred to as kind of front and back office software. So uh, things like marketing software or software for sales organizations, as well as in the back office, uh, you know, kind of accounting type software. But really, I think, you know, Polly and I over the years have touched on a little of everything. We've dealt with companies that make uh, touchscreen computers. We've dealt with companies that are, you know, in kind of uh, more consumer-oriented uh, spaces. I'm dealing with a company right now that makes a certain brand of uh, headphones specifically for action sports enthusiasts. Nice. Yeah, so kind of across the board. There's a lot of innovation all the time in the States. It's just so beautiful. I was looking through the notes you provided for me. Is there or are there a couple of stories or case studies, let's call them, whether they're in the book or outside of the book that you'd like to sort of highlight here while we're together? Yeah, absolutely. Probably, uh, uh, sure, yeah. That would be fun. Start right. on one, and then you can add, add to it, Kevin. You know, we've had the opportunity, as you say, to work with so many different company, companies over the years. And 
when it comes to leadership, they are all so different. <laughs> and, you know, good yeah. good and bad, right? I mean, we when we, when we were writing that book, we, for a while we were kind of complaining a little bit, like, oh, yeah. I can't believe this guy and that guy. And <laughs> then we, we stepped back and we said, no, wait a second, there's actually some really great leaders here. And there was one company that Kevin and I worked for in the marketing technology space, and we had the opportunity to work with one of the founders, which is actually fairly unusual. Usually you're not working with the CEO or the founder that closely because they're too busy. But regardless, um, this individual was such a professional, and he was his philosophy about his company was that he wanted to uh, he didn't have a, illusions about, I'm going to be number one in my space. But he said, you know, I want to be number three. And so that was the vision that he gave to us. And as we went about on our plans with him developing uh, whatever it was, um, byline articles or press releases, pitches, he was always involved and always so pleasant and easy to work with. And also very much no pressure, like, you guys are doing great. We're on the right plan. There's no need to, you know, conquer the world today. We'll get there. And ultimately, the company did get acquired by a much larger company. And, of course, I'm sure the founders made a huge amount of money on that. But all throughout, he was so uh, – there was no ego and so much appreciation for what Kevin and I were trying to do. And that was, unfortunately, kind of an exception to a lot of the startups we work with in which there's not a much of an appreciation for PR or outside consultants in general, I think. And so this person, I felt like – was such an unusual and refreshing take on how to run a startup. And that was something that we discussed in one of the chapters around the self-funded startup. And I think it did relate to not having the pressure of VCs and outside investors pushing somebody to IPO or, you know, succeed very quickly and, and sell out. And yeah. he did it his own way. And, and it turned out to be extremely successful. Well, this is a, no, this is a beautiful example of how to do it right. And by the way, you mentioned there were no, there was no pressure externally on the capital side. So what stage were, was he in at this point when you were encountering him and having this really, really joyous uh, experience? Right. You know, Kevin, I don't remember where they were in their journey, but I think when we started working with them, it was two years before acquisition. Is that right? That's right. As a matter of fact, I would say they probably had around, you know, 25 employees, give or take at the time, David, and, you know, probably a revenue run rate, give or take, you know, three to five million dollars. I mean, it was it was yeah. a, it was a small company. They were really just getting started. Yeah. And Ollie's point, I mean, they they had a terrific exit. Uh, they ended up being acquired by a company outside their state. Uh, that recognized their potential in their space. And, mm. you know, the CEO of this company had funded the organization on the back of his credit card, essentially. And uh, so had an entire ownership stake. And uh, Oh, nice. You know, well, that simplifies point. things. And that's probably part of, you know, look, you obviously had a really, really quality human being at the helm. And that is, from all the stories I've heard, I'm really glad you brought that one up because that serves as an example about the, the emotional intelligence being the exception, unfortunately, as you mentioned, around all of this running companies and, and just being a human on the planet. I mean, that idea of being able to work without this sort of, you know, the pressure is is pressure that a CEO can decide or not decide maybe to have or it's just their personality and their their behavioral biases and the way they manage people it's such a great i mean i'm really glad you led with that example because it's uh you know you talk about symptoms 
earlier in this segment about oversized egos and and the inertia that can be sort of run away and then the pressure from outside investors and then this fr- the frustrations about not having control here you're describing an individual that not only had a very clear vision that was realistic in terms of wanting to position the company as number three but also had the capacity to let go and bring good people in and trust them right absolutely i, I give you another example or two, David, that I think makes sense. You worked with a company out of Atlanta that a CEO who really, I I believe, had a vision for where his company was, could go over time. He was working in uh, in, uh, kind of as a partner to Google in terms of helping Google sell its Gmail product, right? Gmail application that many of us use today. And really had a sense at at a very early stage where this company could go and potential for his organization and grew it. Now they, they did raise the bring in some outside capital, but took it from, you know, inception to exit about, I want to say seven or eight years it took them and just had a terrific exit, just had the foresight to kind of see where things were going ahead of the market uh, and did a terrific job. Um, was a, a company called Cloud Sherpas that we worked with, just had a terrific exit and wow. really got a hand to the CEO. Nice. Um, whereas we worked with another company also in Atlanta, I won't mention the name of the company, but the, the CEO had previously had a ton of experience and I think had a lot of confidence going into a new venture that he started. Yep. And I think Paul referenced his company before, but about two years in, uh, most of the organization really had no idea. Certainly we had no idea, but they had to shut down uh, rather unexpectedly because I think the CEO just it, they, they couldn't get a product to market, and he didn't. He was a little, I almost want to say, a little embarrassed that he wasn't able to kind of bring this company to fruition, uh, you know, in yeah. kind of the ways that he before. Yeah, Kevin. I mean, that's, that's an example of, yeah, this overconfidence thing where you've had previous successes and really the next, you know, it's like the Dizzy Gillespie thing. The, the best song you're going to write is the next one. They don't understand <laughs> that this is going to be different because it's future going and Everything they've learned in the past endeavor may not apply. And just this a, a willingness to be open. And a lot of it, again, it, it, you know, I keep saying it, it points to emotional intelligence. I mean, it sounds a little trite, but that is what we're talking about, the quality of the people you're dealing with. By the way, I should reset. We're uh, visiting with Kevin Wolf and Polly Trailer. They are the co-authors of Startup Land, Madness, Brilliance, and PR Misadventures, bringing new insight to the everything around startups, including the way they communicate. So I wanted to ask, What's the thing that you've experienced that, let's say, a company that has deployed, they're in the market, they're, they've got a run rate, revenues coming in, but they, what do they not get about how to use PR and maybe communications more broadly than PR specifically? I think that, you know, one of the things that Kevin and I continually struggle with is that startups, and, and I kind of understand it now that we've been doing this for long enough, but startups are often founded by engineers and they are focused on writing code, releasing a product, very outcomes-oriented people. And with PR, there is no guarantee that you do X and you get Y. So we'll start working with, with folks and we'll, we'll do a press release. And, you know, it may not have the, the impact that they had hoped it would be because they think their product is the best thing that has ever been developed in the entire world. Sure. So we have to try to manage those expectations and, and, and communicate that when you're starting out, nobody knows you. Your first release, unless it's a huge funding round, um, is not going to get a lot of attention. And so you have to continue to build on all of these communication opportunities. And so it's not just the press releases. It's staying in touch with reporters. 
It is maybe speaking at industry events. It's blogging. It is a process that you must continue at and not do it uh, two weeks in March and then forget about it until July because you're busy and then try and pick up again because usually by that point you go back and, and reporters are like, what, who are you? And they've moved on. Right. Or maybe they've even changed their beat, you know. So it's a very volatile world here in, in, in media, and you just have to stay on top of this and, and not think of it as, you know, I'm going to get this result if I hire this PR firm. It's really a process, and you have to be involved as well. You cannot just throw something over the fence and, and not help the PR firm at all because that is not going to get any results, really. Well, Polly, a lot of great insights there. You know, you point to the, the distinction between PR and what has become a very measurable advertising and sort of direct response environment that we all live in, where every click is measured, it's paid for, it's budgeted, there's a, there's a result, we look at metrics, there's conversion. I mean, PR really is a very different animal, isn't it? It is. It's, it's you know, it, it's, uh, it's amorphous, right? I mean, you can't there certainly are ways to measure the results of PR, and uh, we, we try to do that for our clients whenever possible. But yeah, yeah. Uh, we always point to is, look, you're, what you're aiming for here is some cover for your sales team. Uh, we want to create our goal when we get engaged with a client, David, is to help them develop what we would call sales tools, right? So these are your press releases and your case studies and your byline articles and your blog content and all these things that your sales pe- your sales team can use to send out to their prospects and say, hey, look, here's what we're doing, right? We're keeping busy. Here's the progress we're, we're making. Here's the success we're having. Here's why you ought to do business with us. So we're creating these, these sales tools. We're helping to provide that cover to the sales team so they can uh, further their further their opportunities. Yeah, it's a whole toolkit. And and I love the way you contextualize the work you do for clients. And uh, I was going to ask, it came up uh, as we were speaking there, when a company is in a round of funding, does PR come into play? And that's a different kind of communication, isn't it? It is. It's an important communication, right? Because it's validation from uh, from a third party that what you're doing, the yeah. business idea you've conceived is yeah. a good one. Yeah. Right? It demonstrates to the market that you've, you've got something. And by the way, when you, get, you know, depending on the credibility of the investors, it can go a long way toward generating coverage or um, you know, kind of uh, impress, in terms of impressing the, uh, the journalist that you're trying to reach. When you've got Google behind you, when you've got Salesforce backing you, when you've got some high-profile venture capital firm in Silicon Valley behind you, that makes a big difference. So we actually invest quite a bit of time in, uh, in pushing that kind of news for a company. And as we wind down this segment, uh, Kevin and Polly, they are the authors, by the way, of Startup Madness, Brilliance, and PR Misadventures, probably available on Amazon and everywhere else, right? Uh, you had a question here in the notes. What drives tech editors and reporters crazy when you're dealing with startups, uh, when they're dealing with startups? T- talk a little bit about that. Can you put some color on that? I, I used to work as a technology journalist mm. many years ago. Mm. And so I have a little bit of a, the other side of this understanding. And you know what is funny is that when I used to work in in journalism, you know, we would get, this was a long time ago, and you know, I, I hate to say it, but you know, you get all these pitches all day long. And so yeah. you're basically going to only click on something that relates to what you're interested in right now or what you might be interested in a couple of weeks. Right. And so... I think when you're a startup and, you know, you're sending out your pitch and you're like, well, why didn't they respond? I think I'm going to call them or send out about three more emails or something like that. 
And so you get the reporter, maybe you might catch them on the phone, or, but at a certain point, they're going to they're gonna put you in their you know, spam folder, delete, block, or if they reply, they're going to say, hey, I got it, please don't contact me again. So I think it's the understanding that you just can't nag. That's like, you know, rule number one, reporters are very busy and they get probably 50, I would say maybe 100 pitches a week. Maybe more, depending upon who they are and how, how prominent that they are. So you have to be patient and you have to be respectful of their time and you have to be very targeted um, to what they are covering. So if you're sending out something to somebody just because they work at Forbes, but it has nothing to do with what they've been covering the last six to 12 months, well, you know, that's not going to work very well. Yeah, I would yeah. say the other thing, yeah, I would say just one more thing and I'll let Kevin add is, is excessive jargon. You know, it's really annoying to get emails or press releases that are so convoluted. You, you have to read it a couple times to understand. And trust me, they're not going to read it a couple of times. If they don't understand very quickly or like within a couple of minutes or less, maybe 30 seconds, what you were trying to communicate, forget it. Delete. So those are a couple of things I would say. And Kevin, I'm sure, has more. Yeah, I mean, that's spot on. I'll give you two more, David. Um, sure. Hyperbole, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. every... I can't tell you how many times you've got a client that says they want to include in a press release or in a pitch to a a reporter something like, we are the greatest or the world's first or the leading. I mean, press just gets so turned off by hyperbole. It just drives them crazy because how in the world can every single company be the leading provider of XYZ, whatever it happens to be? It's just, it's kind of silly. Um, Another one, and this is something I learned uh, very quickly about, you know, when I got started in this business 20-something years ago was no one wants to be called sir or ma'am. I mean, it's a, it's a big red flag if you present a pitch to a report and say, dear sir, I mean, it's like, this seems like a, um, you know, it, it, it's just, it's contrived, right? It's just not, it's not from one person to the other. It's almost like a computer generated. Right, act. right. This quality of connection you're pointing to, dude, it's just about business and people communicating on the planet today. It's just not a part of what yeah. we do anymore. Yeah. Exactly. I love the hyperbole thing too, because you know, you're pointing to the ego that this is a, an expression or projection rather of the ego of the founder clearly, you know, and it's just, there's no room for it. That's not the story. And Polly, from your perspective, having been on the other side, I guess the story is what sells, right? They has to be contextually relevant to what they're reporting on. And, uh, you know, we all get caught in our own bubble when we're building a company and, and it's like, uh, you got to get out of that bubble. And this is where professionals like you guys can come in, however resistant a founder may be, to get this external advice and perspective on how to do this so they get published, right? Well, I'll tell you what, and to that point, and please don't take this as a plug necessarily, whether you, whether you work with us or anyone else, one of the things we always talk to clients about is find someone to help represent you who really understands your space, has been in this business for a long time. And by the way, just because you've been in this business as a consultant to P- handling PR for a long time doesn't mean you're going to necessarily be able to get a client story published. At the end of the day, it really is the quality of the story that counts. But really, find a PR consultant, find an agency, find someone to work in-house for you that really, truly understands your space, and that's when you're going to have results. I love it. The book is Startup Madness, Brilliance, and PR Misadventures. So delighted to have you both on the show. Kevin Wolf, Polly Trailer, thanks so much for joining us and for an intelligent discussion about this subject. David, thank you. Thank really you. appreciate it. Small biz.
Small Biz America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.